right. Welcome to the Atheist Experience. We are live. Today is July 2nd, 2017. It's actually down there below my name. Uh, I don't know why I look up to the sky <laughs> as if the answer to what day is it is going to come from the sky. Uh, it's Independence Day weekend in the United States, and so a lot of people are getting uh, extra time off. Uh, Happy birthday, USA. Yay. Uh, this is a live show. Which means anything can happen. It could go wrong. It could go right. We take calls from people. We talk about what they believe and why. Sometimes it's uh, really poignant. Had a call last week that went really well. Sometimes it's antagonistic. Uh, sometimes we get stuff wrong. Uh, but most of the time we have good conversations and enjoy ourselves. I'm your host, yeah. Matt Delaney. Joining me this week, John Iacoletti. Howdy. Woo. Uh, yeah, this this is sponsored by the Atheist Community of Austin. And if you didn't know, the Atheist Community of Austin is a nonprofit educational organization promoting positive atheism in the separation of church and state. And you can donate to the ACA, uh, tax-deductible donations, both by going to atheist-community.org and finding the donate link there, or, I'm told now, on YouTube. As we stream this live to YouTube, we are also streaming it live to the Atheist Experience Facebook page, if I'm correct, and uh, I believe we're still on Ustream for now, but there's a number of different ways for you to try to catch the show. And we're constantly making improvements to the show. We're making improvements to the studio. Um, some things take more time, and some things, by the way, uh, take quite a bit of money. And after being at the board meeting today, I thought it would be nice to mention uh, that for the year, we are currently running at a deficit. Now, we'll find a way to fix it, but you know what would fix it really, really quickly? If, like, 14,000 people... <laughs> click the donate link and donate it a dollar. That it fix the deficit that we're working at for studio improvements and other stuff. Just like that. And you'd have our eternal gratitude as well. I'm not going to take a call <laughs> until we get $14,000 in donation. God has spoken to me and he wants me to build a 900-foot John Iacoletti in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, jeez. <laughs> No, actually, we so, are going to So take much those. for any donations. Or... <laughs> I don't know. I think it'd be really good next to, like, the Football Jesus and or, or Roberts one. The number to call into the show is 512-686-0279. All the lines are actually full right now. If you go to atheist-experience.com, you'll find information about how to connect with the show. And by the way, even though we don't mention it very often, uh, you can actually come down and watch the show live if you're here in Austin. Right now, there's maybe 20 or so people on the other side of the glass. Uh, we don't have a lot more room than that, and parking is at a premium. But we're thrilled when people come down uh, to join us. And speaking of joining us, after the show's over, we get together for dinner at Star of India at 2900 West Anderson Lane. And I actually got the address up out of my mouth before they put it up on the bottom. which means Way I, before. I've, yeah, it's like taking forever. That's all right. I memorized it. I still haven't gotten this pointing to the banner thing down. Yeah, what I have to end up doing is like looking at your name and going, oh, that's where the phone number is. You know, I can point <laughs> oh, to John. There you go. Yeah, that way I don't have to flip it in my head. Anyway, you can join us for dinner there at Star of India Restaurant. Uh, any atheist or atheist-friendly person is welcome to join us. You can also visit the atheist-community.org website to find out more about the ACA, how to donate, and to start buying tickets for this year's Bat Cruise. Uh, is September 22nd? 23rd, I 23rd? believe, Saturday, yeah. Anyway, the information will be up there. Seating is limited. Uh, we can only get, what, maybe 175, 200 on the boat? Yeah, at, at most. Uh, and do we, oh, have we got our speaker lined up for this year? We do. And, uh, have we announced it yet? We've announced it, uh, 
and and I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, and you're putting me on the spot because I can't the remember website. off the top of my head. But yeah, it's on the website. We re- we revamp the website. You should go to the website and find out more about this. Uh, I don't know. It is the president of ex Muslims of America, though, uh, and I can't think of his name. Yeah, it's um, Muhammad. Uh, That's it. Is it Rizvi? Anyway, I'm being told. Look, yeah, look on uh, the website. It's on the website. Why are we? This is a problem with live TV, and, and no rehearsal. It's not like John and I sat around and said, "Hey, when we do the announcements, I want you to fumble on this part, and I'll fumble <laughs> on that part." But we might do that next time. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and get to taking live calls here in just a second. Uh, as a reminder, we've got six phone lines. We tend to prefer theistic callers. Um, this week, though, we're going to start off with an atheist caller or two, in part because of feedback from you. Thanks to the folks who filled out the survey who gave us a little bit more information about what they'd like to see on the show. Uh, we're going to be working towards having more guests, uh, changing up the host and co-host lineup. We're not getting rid of anybody. Uh, we're going to be making the changes that people suggested and increasing... Uh, the diversity of, of views and personas uh, on the show. Uh, that being noted, we have live from Tennessee, Josh. Thanks for waiting, Josh. Hey, guys. What's going on? Hey, Josh. We're doing a TV show. What are you doing? Yeah, I'm watching the TV show. Awesome. Uh, what a coincidence. Uh, are you watching this TV show or are you watching another one? I believe I am. Okay, because it'll get confusing. Pay attention to the to the phone though, and not the actual show, because you're going to be hearing it on a delay, and that'll just be you know messy. Yes, sir. <laughs> what do you I, got I for us? You. Um, yes, sir. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Um, the first one is not really for me so much. Um, it's actually for my dad. Um, we were both uh, pretty much indoctrinated into um, Christianity, like like independent Southern Baptist. Uh, mm-hmm. type deal, whatever you want to call it. But my dad really suffers from, uh, you know, like the fear of eternal damnation, and he really just wants your guys' opinion on, like, you know, what's the best way to go about getting past that fear. He, he's an atheist now, and he's still suffering from that fear? Yes, sir. I mean, like, he he knows it's irrational. Sure. Um, you know, he just has to. But it's like keep reminding himself that um, yeah, there's all like kinds he, of, there's all kinds of irrational fears. I mean, being afraid of something uh, in many cases is itself irrational. That you you've essentially amplified the concern about something to a point that is unwarranted. Um, there are plenty of things to you know rationally fear. If you're crossing the street, you should rationally fear that there's a vehicle getting ready to slam into you and take the appropriate precautions. But if you're walking around outside, I wouldn't say that, that it's a particularly rational fear that you're going to be abducted by aliens uh, just, you know, while you're gardening. I can't say that it won't happen. Uh, but I don't, I don't want to be too glib about this because I've heard from people who found their way out of religions, uh, who were indoctrinated into beliefs uh, of all sorts, uh, the idea that they're going to suffer eternally in, in hell. Uh, the idea that they were born wrong, that there's something fundamentally wrong with who they are. Um, all of these things are uh, insidious aspects of that religions have used to kind of keep people involved. Because if you're if you're afraid of what will happen if you leave, you are less likely to leave. For me, uh, I didn't have that much of a problem with it. And um, my experience isn't going to be right, probably not typical. Everybody's going to have to deal with it in their own way. But the thing that I would I would have your dad ask himself is, which hell is he worried about? 
If he's only worried about the one that he was indoctrinated to believe, the one that's tied to his particular independent Baptist, you know, upbringing, um, mm. then it should be pretty clear that what he's worried about is something that was specifically inserted into his mind by that group, and that he hasn't spent any time worrying about, you know, the Catholic version of hell um, or the hells of other religions that don't even fit in with Christianity. And if he isn't spending time worrying about those then it's probably uh, a good idea to not be as concerned about the one that he's concerned about. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy to do. Um, yes, sir. What I ended up doing, I, you know, and this was pretty quick for me, was I can't do anything about it. I, I have no idea. I, I don't think there's any good reason to think there's an afterlife at all. I think the, the science is in opposition to that idea. Um, but let's imagine for a second that I'm wrong and there's an afterlife. What's it like? I have no idea. Is it going to be a good thing? Is it going to be a bad thing? I have no idea. And I have no way to find out. And so if I, every second of this life that I spend worrying about what might happen in an afterlife is a second that I haven't made the most of in this world. Because you could sit around worrying about, you know, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next Friday? What's going to happen next Friday? What's going to happen next Friday? And if you do that all the way up until Thursday, you've wasted the entire week. And it, what if it turns out nothing happens on Friday? Now you wasted the one and only week that you had. And that's the thing with the afterlife that expands this, because you can potentially waste the one and only life that you know you're getting in anticipation of what might happen, you know, in a in an afterlife that you don't have any reason to think is real. Yes, sir. And, you know, it kind of touches on, like, Pascal's Wager, which I've, you know, I've watched just about every single one of your <laughs> videos online, and... I actually watched the Pascal's Wager video on the Patreon project that you uh, mm -hmm. posted on there. So, yes, sir. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. This is something that takes effort. And I know people who've been atheists for fifty years who still wake up with nightmares of, you know, hell and other stuff. But it's one of those things where everybody has nightmares, and you kind of do the rational, shake it off, and you, and you go back about your day. What I think is amusing, uh, amusing is not the right word, intriguing. Uh, and you might ask your dad about this. I, I didn't suffer from this fear of hell after I got rid of religion. I didn't suffer from the fear of hell too much while I was in religion because I didn't think I was going there. I, I was convinced that Jesus was going to carry me off to paradise. But I also yeah. didn't have that big of a concern about it. And what I found from some atheists who are having a hard time putting away this particular uh, concern is that they weren't... Uh, this wasn't a fundamental reason why they believed then. It's, they're far more concerned about it now after the fact, some of them, uh, than they were when they were in. Yes, sir. Oh. And uh, I think a lot of it had to do with, like, our specific church that we went to. Like, they um, thought it was basically like a sin to search for, uh, you know, clues that God was sending you, and you had to, you know, by faith alone, believe it, which was basically, it's a huge con, but, um, you know, it just kept people guessing, but, um, yes, sir, and I, I don't personally suffer from that fear of eternal damnation, so I didn't know how to answer them, so I thought, you know. Yeah, I would just add that it's, it's really hard to kind of reason yourself out of something that, uh, that got to you through, uh, rational means. So when you're indoctrinated as a child before the age of reason, uh, that's it's really hard to break. 
uh, and try to reason yourself out of that because you, it didn't come to you through reason. So uh, there's, you know, there's some support groups available. Uh, recovering from religion, uh, I think that might be really helpful uh, because there's other people in the same boat, and you can, you know, like any support group, you feel like you're not alone, and people give you some coping mechanisms and some ways to think about it that might be helpful if something like that's available in his area. There's a response that I've talked about before, but I have concerns. Uh, There are people who are prone to perhaps worrying uh, more than is warranted. And so I I, I was talking to somebody who had a a similar issue to what your dad's experiencing, and I was like, how much time do you spend worrying that your house is going to burn down? I mean, that's something that could really happen. We know it happens. My neighbor's house, catty corner from us, burned down. I live-streamed it on Facebook as the firefighters desperately tried to save it. It's a real concern. And if you're spending more time worrying about an afterlife than you are about something that could actually happen, um, I would say that that's, that's a clear mistake. Uh, but my concern is that now the person's likely to be worried about hell and their house burning down, <laughs> and I might have yeah. added more misery to it. Uh, but the point, of course, is that uh, you should your, your concern about things should be proportional to their likelihood. And for something that has no demonstrated likelihood, uh, it doesn't deserve concern. I understand. Um, Matt, that's a, I like that answer. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, I, one, one other quick thing, if we can get to it. Um, this kind of completely off topic of what we were just talking about. Um, I... I've been talking to like a lot of uh, theists lately, uh-huh. um, and I usually start off by you know talking about faith and how um, trying to rationalize with them, you know, how it's not really a reliable pathway to truth and everything. And um, the thing that, that always comes back up is uh, that you know if you pray through faith, then you will attain a personal knowledge. You know, and I told him, you know. And try to reason with them that you know knowledge uh, can be, or knowing implies knowledge, and knowledge can be demonstrated. But you know they they keep making this appeal to personal knowledge, and I, I don't really know how to respond to that. Like, is that even should I even take that seriously? Or well, the, the issue, of course, you shouldn't take it seriously. I mean, if if John tells me something, um, I then have to make a decision, and it may not even be like a conscious decision. Do I believe what John's saying or not? And if I don't find it believable and I ask for justification and John tells me, well, it's just my personal experience, now I have a second decision to make. And what I tend to do at that point is say, I'm willing to accept that John thinks this. Um, I don't necessarily know that he's correct. For example, my mom tells me that she knows that Jesus is real. Um, I am convinced that my mom believes that. And I'm convinced that she is honestly trying to represent what she believes, but that doesn't mean that I have good reason to believe that Jesus is real. And if I'm having a discussion with somebody like that and they they want to go down this route of, you know, I've got personal revelation or personal knowledge or whatever else, would they believe you if you said that they were wrong based on personal revelation? Yeah, I got you. And now Um, be, be prepared because... For a lot of them, if not most of them, that will be absolutely ineffective at the beginning because from their perspective, even if they're not completely convinced, even if they occasionally have their doubts as we know people do, they've been trained 
to express an incredible confidence level. I know that I know that I know that I know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you say something like, oh, would you believe me if I told you that I had private revelation that you were gone, and that that was the only justification I could give you was private revelation, they would say, no, I I wouldn't believe you because I already have the truth. (laughs) That's going to be the the most likely starting answer. And you're going to have to say, yeah, I know that you believe that. The question is, how can we demonstrate it? Because, yes. you know, we've got, both of us are claiming that we have a truth. And also they'll, they'll probably point out that you're not being sincere, that you're trying to make a point, that you haven't gained, ha- you don't have a private revelation that they're wrong. Uh, so you gotta make sure you, you, you keep it on the topic of, okay, maybe you're justified in believing, but do you think I am or should be as well? You know, yeah. John, John could have been abducted by aliens last weekend. It could have actually happened. And he would have justification to believe it happened, provided I think he got independent confirmation, but that's a longer topic. But I don't know that John would think I have sufficient justification to believe him. Would you? Yeah. No. But yeah. That's one of those things, people talk to me, you know, if there was a God, it would be amazing for that God to reveal himself to me. Not because I'm so special, but because... I have particular standards for what would convince me, and they're, they're standards that I've conveyed to a, a large audience for 13 years. And if a God revealed himself to me, there would only be two, there's only two possibilities. Either he revealed himself in a way that convinced me, which I could then share with other people and they should be convinced, or he revealed himself to me in a way, in such a way that I'm the only one who can be convinced. And I would still be able to express that honestly to other people to say that I know that you, you, you shouldn't be convinced. This is, this is a death trap for the theists, you know, the, the presuppositionalists who claim that everybody knows God exists. Because all they're doing is saying they can't be wrong. And you can't really have a conversation with that. It's extremely frustrating. I don't know. Um, how do you deal with that? Personal revelation, personal knowledge thing, John. Well, that's kind of there's kind of nothing left to talk about at that point. If they, you know, I believe it because I had an experience. Uh, you know, it gets down to well, why should I believe it? Because that doesn't help me determine what's true or not. Just because you, uh, you know, came to that knowledge through some avenue that's only accessible to yourself. That's you know, that's fine. I, I don't tend to argue at that point because. You know, okay, you you believe it. You have your reasons. Uh, it's it's nothing that I can examine for myself. So you know, until until there is something I can examine, then you know, knock yourself out. Uh, if you want to convince me, though, you're going to have to have more than just personal revelation. I wonder if there's a way to look at it, um, particularly for people who have kids. I, I don't have kids, but I I was a kid. I am a kid. Let's face it, I am a kid. I'm a you know, <laughs> big kid. Big kid. Um, imagine you got two kids and they were in a fight and you ask who started it I'm not quite sure exactly why who started it is as irrelevant as we tend to make it out but that tends to be the first question and they both steadfastly say that the other person started it and you have no other evidence to go on what decision can you make? Punish them both I mean do you punish them both? do you let them both off? do you... You know, I think that, you know, it, I'm in favor of a, having a conversation or figuring out something that's equitable. Maybe you guys both participated in this or, 
you know, I can't necessarily find the liar. I don't want to believe one or the other. But my thing is, I would ask the kids. You say she did it. She says you did it. How can I tell which one of you is telling the truth? And if you get them to realize that as long as one of them is is clearly lying, uh, that I can't tell. Um, well, you might end up getting a lot more evidence because I think the one that's lying is going to smirk at some point uh, <laughs> about how they got away with it. But having a conversation with them exposes this. And if you can't do that in a conversation with a theist about, you know, hey, you say there's a God and it's this God. That person over there says there's a God and it's some other God. And I'm not convinced that either of you are correct. What am I supposed to do? How, how would you handle that situation? Ask the theist, how would you handle that situation if you were in that situation? And why would you expect me to do anything different? Well, if you if you talk to people every Sunday for thirteen years, <laughs> you'd have, have the yeah. answer to. And the, you know, we we I don't know what the answer is. Every theist you talk to is going to be a little bit different. Uh, oh yes, yeah. Some of them are are, are not going to understand reason and rationality enough to even be able to have that conversation. You ask them, "What do you expect me to do?" And they're just going to say, "I expect you to believe me and not that other person." Because I'm right. Because I yeah, I got the <laughs> truth. I don't know why you can't see it, but you should believe me. I mean, you're going to have those conversations. And the best you can do is is point out why there's a problem with that, and, and try, take the religion out of it entirely. Um, talk about how you go about establishing what is a reasonable position, what's believable. Yeah, that's how I usually uh, like. Whenever I do have conversations with people like that, you know, um, I'll do that. You know, like take the religion out of it and just say, you know, like we're what's an example of how faith can lead us to. Um, truth and any other you know, um, aspect of our life besides religion, you know, um, yep. yeah, just take the religion out of it. It really, you know, seems to make it a lot you know, easier to for them to see through it when you do that. The last little but, bit of advice I'll give you, Josh, is this: um, always be open to having the conversation, but don't expect to change somebody's mind in one one little sitting. And if it gets to a point oh, yeah. where you don't have an answer, just say, hey, let's stick a pin in this. We'll go off and have some fun, have some dinner. Maybe we'll meet up again in, you know, another week or, you know, and talk about it some more. I definitely don't go into it with that expectation. Because like, I was in their shoes before. And yeah, exactly. There is no amount of reasoning you could do with me. I was firm in my beliefs. And yet something eventually worked. And, and figuring out what that is and why, and it's going to be different for everybody, but, but figuring out the, the what and the why behind what changed your mind um, is going to be helpful. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it was ever just like one specific thing, which is how it is with most yep. uh, atheists. Right. You know, like it was just, I was having that conversation with my dad earlier today. Like I, I can't tell you what changed, what one thing changed my mind. And it, 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 perhaps it shouldn't be one thing. If I find out... Uh, that I have good reason to think that Noah's Ark story is, you know, absolutely false, that it's a patently absurd uh, story. That doesn't tell me about the rest of the stories in the Bible, but, you know, any of this other stuff. Uh, at least not entirely. There, There is the idea that, you know, it, it's an all-or-nothing sort of 
uh, book or religion in some senses, that if you find out that an aspect of it is false because God can't be not true, you know, and every man's a liar. Yeah. Uh, but on that note, I'm going to let you go, Josh, and we're going to move on to some other calls, but I appreciate it, and uh, good luck in conversations. Yeah, thanks for taking my call, guys. Have a good one. Thanks, sure. Josh. Ooh. I think there's a... So the lines are full. I almost think that the next call came in before I finished hanging up. That's how fast it flickered. It's oh, well. pretty wild. Um, Hunter in... Uh, is it Levon or Levin? Uh, Levon. 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 Okay. Well, I had hey, Elton uh, John on the brain. Doing, doing pretty good. How are you? Oh, not bad, not bad. Um, my question mainly had to do with uh, spirituality and uh, afterlife, I guess. So I don't know what spirituality really means. But All right, uh, would you like me to kind of give you my uh, my definition of it then? Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, for me, I guess a little bit of background here, uh, I used to be a really, really strong believer in the fundamentalist believer in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, the resource was kind of like a show and uh, the couple others, like the skeptic, sanitated Bible, I kind of saw my way out of that. But I still had uh, sort of a belief in the afterlife, and I kind of used that to mean spirituality, because I don't know if there's a, so, if there is anything there, but I'd kind of... So you're, still you're equating? You, for you, the afterlife is spirituality? Can we just dump the word spirituality entirely and talk about the afterlife and whether or not we have good reason to believe it? Yeah, no problem. Cool. I mean, if they're the same. So, all right, yeah. What reason do you think we might have to think that there's something beyond life? Uh, well, basically, the reason that uh, that I've had is I can't prove uh, any way that this goes, but I've had a couple experiences that was uh, recorded and found in my house with cameras, and basically, it kind of shows things that can't be explained at least to our knowledge okay if it can't kind of if it can't be ex- if it's something can't be explained you don't get to say that it is evidence for an afterlife because you don't have an explanation if you if you don't know what it is that you've seen how could it possibly be evidence for an afterlife you know what that's actually a good point i've always just kind of believed it to be uh kind of like a spirit doing it yeah i mean so you you Let's let's just say you recorded some phenomena like we're, we'd see on the History Channel uh, as I vomit a little into my mouth. Uh, and you have something where it's unexplained. Isn't that where we should stop until we have an explanation? Yeah, you know, I guess that's a good point because if you don't have an explanation, you can't really investigate it. I, I can actually go one better when it comes to the afterlife because I think the idea of an afterlife... Uh, or at least the idea of a soul is, no, uh, pun intended, the most dead topic in all of religion. And the reason for that is, what about me survives my death or could survive my death? Now, I'm walking, talking, I have preferences and memories. Um, everything that seems to make me me is identifiable in my brain. It's not only identifiable, it's malleable. I can suffer brain trauma and lose all of my memories, lose the ability to make new memories. I can fundamentally change my, have my personality changed. 
uh, I can develop, you know, multiples of these conditions at once to the point where it could potentially be argued that I'm a new person. Uh, what's worse than that, and I would ve- recommend looking up um, a talk from V.S. Ramachandran. It's probably about nine years old at this point. Where He's a neuroscientist, and on occasion they will sever the corpus callosum to for people suffering from... I think it's strong epileptic seizures so that the two hemispheres of the brain can no longer communicate with each other. And they do studies on those patients because you know how like the right side of your brain controls your left arm and the left side controls your right arm and one half of your brain will be able to control your speech center but the other one can't? Yes, sir. Okay. So in cases, in, in a case where they severed the corpus callosum, they end up with two distinct personalities communicating independently. One of them is able to talk and the other one is able to use whichever hand is is associated with that half the brain. The specifics don't matter. And one half of that, or or one of the two personalities, or half a person, I don't know. How do you do math with that? You know, (laughs) Are there two halves of a soul now? Did one half get the soul and the other one didn't? Because what happened is one of those two communicating entities believed in a god and the other one didn't. Hmm. And what's worse is what if the one that believed in the God isn't the one that has a soul? Now, if we can manipulate parts of the brain to fundamentally change things about who we are, where where is there any room left in that model for a soul? If I can go out and take actions, my soul could be maybe unable to communicate through my brain, and so now I'm out taking actions that would damn me to somebody's hell. My soul can't seem to do anything about it because it's just along for the ride. It's no longer controlling things. Or, and that's you know, that's in the case when you've got the, the split brain patients, there's no way that, it, that this makes sense because what does the soul do? What does it add to this, and how does it work when we know that altering a brain alters a person? Well, I guess it's just uh, brain chemistry at that point if there's really no way you can prove a soul if your brain can change that much. And, uh, yeah, so the, if there's no room left for a soul and we don't have any good reason to believe it, everything we've attributed to a soul, apart from it being able to survive the body, um, is, is identifiable, not fully understood, but identifiable as a function of the brain. And you can't argue that, well, your spirit, your soul, inhabits your brain and is the ghost in the machine manipulating things if physically changing the brain changes you. So given given what we know about neuroscience, which isn't complete, at a minimum we can say we see no possible space for a soul within any of the brain models that we have now. Well, I guess for me, I guess it just kind of never really, you know, clicked in my head that, hey, there's really this whole concept of a soul doesn't really, there's no reason for it. I never really kind of, that never clicked to me until now. Okay. Well, and I'm curious, you mentioned kind of strange events occurring, and Matt kind of alluded to it earlier, but what what was it about those events that made you think it was a spirit as as, as opposed to some other force that you didn't, you know, understand at the time, you know, like a, an earthquake or something else. Well, uh, I'll just give one example. Uh, We had this uh, camera set up to record in our house at night, and uh, one of them you could see when I was walking, 
and it didn't happen one time. It happened about three or four times over the course of a couple months. And we go back and fix. It would show when there was movement. Um, it was like these blue dots, kind of like orbs that some of my family says that those are spirits. You could see them kind of like moving around and like. Did anybody in your family? Did anybody in your family suggest that that might be particles of dust? Uh, no. So one thing is you're looking at footage through a camera lens, which fundamentally alters things and can create illusions. Are you familiar with Pepper's Ghost? Uh, no, actually, I've never heard of that. Cool. Well, look up Pepper's Ghost. It, it wouldn't fool anybody today, um, or, or almost anybody. There, there's ways. I won't. Uh, let me retract that. There are ways to make Pepper's Ghost fool people, but. Basically, it uses a piece of glass on an angle, either in a hallway or above the orchestra pit, stuff like that. Um, and by manipulating light, you can make ghostly figures appear. Now, once upon a time, um, based on what we knew about light refraction and stuff like that, uh, it's understandable that people might have suspected, oh, there are ghosts walking around here on stage. Isn't it likely that there's something about recording with a camera and a lens in different light conditions that could produce things like orbs that you just haven't bothered to study to figure out, oh, this is a dust particle. Uh, yeah, I guess that's very likely. Um, I'd always kind of been skeptic about it when it came to, like, flash photography. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was, like, the flash that created it, but I never really thought before that it could be, like, a dust particle. Well, there's, so one of the things you've got to consider is you've got a lens and you've got perspective. And in much the same way, like if you, if you consider like the mountain valley illusion, your brain does things to what it sees. Um, it makes an assessment of the light to determine whether you're looking at a mountain or a valley. And there's ways to trick that, which is why we have optical illusions. So you can do it with color as well. There's, you know, pictures of, uh, Rubik's cubes where there's a brown square and an orange square that are clearly different until you put them right next to each other and you find out they're the exact same hue. Your brain does not create an accurate picture of reality. It is constantly interpreting. And one of the things that's difficult to interpret in a two-dimensional plane, as on this thing here, is which which of my two hands, well, you probably can't see the screen, which of my two hands is closer to you right now? It may be that you're watching on a screen that's small enough that you really can't tell that it's my left hand that's closer to the screen. But what's worse is, if a dust particle flies in front of the lens fairly close, it's blurry because it's not the subject of focus. And if your brain tries to make sense of that, it can be viewed in two different ways. It could be viewed as a dust particle that's close and out of focus, and that's why it's got this ghostly halo thing around it. Or it could be a ghostly orb that's 10, 12 feet away. How do you tell the difference? you got to actually know a little bit about optics and do some investigation. And I would say that, hey, I saw some orbs, and, and, and to use your own words, people in my family said they were spirits. Well, do people in your family have any expertise in this area? Uh, no. Yeah. So the time to believe that there, that there are spiritual orbs or that there are ghosts or anything else is after we have sufficient evidence to justify that. Uh, if you just say, well, I can't think of anything, and somebody said that it was a spirit, uh, so I'll go with that, uh, I think you're being insufficiently skeptical. Uh, you know, I guess I'd agree with you on that one. I never really thought about it in that way. Dig in a little bit. Some of this stuff's really interesting. Look up some information about Pepper's Ghost and optical illusions. And, and uh, one of the things, this is something that myself and a bunch of my skeptic friends strongly object to, is the History Channel used to, I don't know, once upon a time talk about history. history. <laughs> and uh, 
And now it's all this ghost hunter crap. And Nazi hunters, too. No, ghost hunters, Nazi hunters. Well, Nazis are ghosts now. Uh, Nazi ghost hunters. Uh, the thing is, there are people who uh, want to believe and are convinced of something, but there are also people who want to make money um, taking advantage of the people who want to believe. And there's not really a network that airs, here's why ghost hunters is garbage as a regular show. But you may find some... Uh, some skeptics on YouTube who have done the work and dig around a bit. But at the end of the day, even if you decide you're not that interested in investigating it, at least keep that in the forefront of your mind because at a minimum, you should be able to acknowledge that you shouldn't be reaching the conclusions you're reaching and perhaps shouldn't be reaching any conclusion at all because you don't have enough information. Oh, yeah, of course. Definitely. Uh, after uh, the episode's over, I'll definitely go back and rewatch and uh – Pick out the things y'all said and research it and uh, investigate into it. And can I uh, say one more thing real quick? Sure. I just want to say uh, I love the show. Uh, I used to be a diehard Christian, but finding you on YouTube and a couple other sources are one of the things that kind of helped me, you know, see the light and see that, uh, you know, I don't have to believe everything people tell me. So I just want to say I appreciate that. And I'll uh, definitely be one of those 14,000 people you need to donate. I'll probably go do that in a minute. And uh, thank you. The Giants best with John. Thank, thank you, Hunter. I appreciate the compliment. And uh, keep investigating. It's a it's a big, wonderful world out there with all kinds of stuff weirder than you could possibly imagine. And we maybe only know this tiny percent, which brings up a theistic argument that I think we should address real quick. John, if there's this much stuff to know about the world, and you only know this much, what if God's in this part that you don't know? What if he is? How do I know that? Yeah. If if I know this much, and knowledge expands out to here, and God's right here, I can't be justified in accepting that a God exists until I know this part. Mm-hmm. What if there is a God out here? It's the same answer as if there's not a God out there. If you don't know, if you don't know all of it, well, okay, then we can't know that there's not a God. Congratulations, you've now turned knowledge into absolute, complete knowledge and certainty. The point is, you can't be warranted if God exists somewhere beyond human knowledge. And God Uh, God is going to hide from you, too, because if you know this much, and then you learn this over here, and God's going to jump over here, and if you learn this, he's going to jump over here, so... Yeah, God's out sunbathing on Venus, and as soon as we start landing, you know, in the right area on Venus, he's going to jump to Jupiter, Oh. He used to be in the clouds before airplanes. and Yeah. So in, in the firmament. Funny how they don't slow down the airplanes in the firmament. But. All right. We got uh, a bunch of other callers left. I'm going to wait on that one real quick. John in Wisconsin, thanks for waiting. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hi, John. Good morning. All right. So first off, I wanted to start off by saying um, – I was turned on to you guys' show by one of my friends who recently went from being a Christian to an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's uh, he's a good friend of mine, and I enjoy talking with him intellectually, and I'm more than willing to shift my perspective uh, when I see that I am completely out of place. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm probably not going to change my entire perspective just based on this one call-in or anything. I wouldn't have expected um, that. I Actually, I would I would be very skeptical if I had a phone call with somebody 
and they dramatically change their position in the course of you know a five, ten, fifteen minute phone call.、Um, and I'll tell you, I tell you this:、um, I did a debate in、uh, Dallas,、uh, and when the debate was over, there was a guy who came up to me who said,、uh, "You know, I walked in here a a serious evangelical Christian." And you convince me, and I no longer believe that, and I'm on your side.、Um, and I pulled him aside. I wanted to talk to him some more because I wanted to find out what it was that changed his mind. Because that process is not something that I think is likely to happen in the course of a debate. And so my thinking is, if he changed his mind, maybe he'd been having doubts and had 25 conversations, and this was the last one. But if he walked in as a serious, committed Christian, and we had a, a simple, you know, debate about whether or not you should believe in the resurrection or whatever, and he walks out an atheist, I'm not convinced that he's actually rational. He might be one of those people、uh, who just accepts the last thing he heard, like some presidents that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate that perspective. But anyway, what,、um, go ahead. What, what time? What do you got for us? So I got I got a lot of topics, but I don't think we're going to get to most of them. So first off, I definitely let let's、really、do this. Let's do this, John. Let's try and keep it to one because there's six callers,、right. and if it goes well, then、Perfect. we could just make this a regular thing where you call in with the other things on your laundry list. Oh, absolutely. All right. So the main perspective I want to bring up is that being a Christian and also a physics major,、um, I see a lot of issues where I want to try and equate. Science with God, and if I don't see a connection between the two, then it kind of makes me a little bit nervous. So I have personally found connections with all the major theories. Like people are like, "Oh God, there's a huge difference between creationism and evolution," and they're talking about all the, and I guess they refer to all the different things like Big Bang theory, planetary and cellular evolution, organic evolution, macroevolution, all those things as evolutions. While I just see them as Different major scientific theories, and I've personally equated all those with reasonable, like beyond any personal reasonable doubt,、uh, with aspects of the Bible. Of course, I don't know very much about the Bible personally. I don't study it enough. But、um, well, there's your first mistake. <laughs> yeah, I know.、Um, but、uh, I, I try to I try to equate it、uh, a little more that way, and. The reason why, one of the main reasons why I don't read the Bible as much, is because I see that the English ones usually tend to be a lot more fallible. They, they don't have the same context as necessarily like the original Greek or Hebrew that it's written in,、um, and there's a lot of con- connotations that are completely missed. Like, for example, like the forty days and forty nights in Hebrew just meant it's a really long time, while we see it's a literal forty days and a literal forty nights、um, sometimes when it's written in English. So that's kind of why I'm a little more hesitant with that.、Uh, but the main so, topic I wanted to get on. Hang on, hang on for a second, John. Because、uh-huh. if if there was a God,、um, mm-hmm. and you you have you you identify as a Christian, I'm assuming. If I heard yes, you, I do. If I heard you correctly, okay. And so you haven't spent a lot of time focused on the Bible because you have concerns about you know translation and meaning and all this other stuff.、Um, Wouldn't wouldn't it be God's responsibility to make sure that there's a clear understanding of His wishes and and you know either the Bible is completely irrelevant, which I don't know how you get to Christianity if if you throw the whole Bible out.、Um, so there must be something relevant about the Bible if you, if Christianity were true. And then wouldn't the 
wouldn't Yahweh, wouldn't Jesus have an obligation uh, to make sure that you clearly understood the message? So uh, that's a very that's a very good point. Um, I don't have a perfect answer to that. Uh, my my personal perspective is that while it would generally be encouraged, everyone's given a choice, and if the translators that are supposed to translate it don't make the right choice with it, or they don't necessarily give it the right feedback, um, it's not going to turn out right. Well, isn't it God's um, responsibility to preserve the record? I mean, if you if you're going to communicate with your your creation, and you've decided that the best way to do this, and I would argue that this is a particularly stupid method, is to reveal information to individuals in languages that you know will mutate and die out, and then you don't even take steps to make sure that the people who are uh, transcribing it and interpreting it and th- that they get it right. How is this remotely a good plan for a God to communicate a message to people? You know, that's a good point. Um, I, I honestly, I don't know really of a good answer for that. Um, I don't either. Well, I, I know, I do know a good answer. I know that based on that, I have no good reason to believe that there is an intelligent, wise God who tried to communicate through a Bible. Uh, there may be a God, and he may be intelligent, he may be wise, but he, no, no intelligent, wise being knowing what was going to happen would communicate in this way. I mean, not even, if you're going to do this, you'd end up with a Bible 2.0 and 3.0 and, you know, direct translations, something like that. And so, if that's the case, and and there is a God, he's not using this plan to communicate. And he doesn't appear to be using any plan to communicate. He seems to be like the the universe's hide-and-go-seek champion, you know, for many years running. Um, and that leaves people, what, what reason would there be to believe in Christianity if you don't have any reasonable expectation that the information you have about Christianity is reliable? Um, that's actually a really good point. Um, I, I, uh, no, I, I, again, I, I draw a blank on that one. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, John, I'm not trying to, you know, beat you up. I'm just pointing out the things that I had to think about. When I was no, a, no, I, a, a, a Southern I Baptist, it's it's one of those things where I think the most difficult part isn't realizing that we don't have good answers to those questions. The most difficult part is realizing that if we don't, in fact, have good answers to those questions, we cannot have a reasonable warrant to believe the the religion that is founded upon uh, those problems that we've exposed. And you talked earlier about you know uh, looking at scientific models, and I. There was something you said that gave me the impression you were finding a way to make God fit in with the scientific models. Is that what you, did you imply that at all? Yeah. So um, my my perspective is um, I the main thing that I've ever really read with the Bible, um, aside from some of the gospel, um, is Genesis, and specifically focused on like Genesis chapters one through I think three, um, and by kind of going through it verse by verse, um, I found how it kind of fits in with the Big Bang Theory going into planetary and stellar evolution and going into, like, macroevolution. Um, and a lot of people don't see it that way, and I 
don't think they necessarily look at it in the right perspective. Um, so how do first of all, how do we know what the right perspective is? Because one of the things, if we're going to look, let me let me do this the easy way. I don't know what the justification is for trying to find a way to make the biblical account match up with the science account. Um, based on what we just talked about, about having no good reason to think that it's a reliable, accurate, you know, portrayal of events. So what, what justification will we have for trying to make it fit? But if the goal is to try and make it fit, I would argue that you're not at all doing anything related to science or reason because that is specifically uh, engaging in interpretation to make what you believe fit the evidence rather than letting the evidence lead to what you should believe. Oh, no, I feel it, I feel that the evidence does does lead to that. I'm just what I do is I initially look at like for example the creation myth, um, and I run through how they correlate. And I think that every time that we do make a scientific discovery, my my perspective is science proves God. So if I we find further scientific studies, we will find more and more things that correlate with the general message that we receive. Now. I look at creation. I've looked at a few creation myths. I looked at, I think, the Buddhist creation myth, and it was laughably dissimilar to like Big Bang theory and such. But you look at uh, like Genesis, and you see that the creation myth holds some water. Like, it's not. It's not going to be perfect. It's it's just how it works because it was written for a non-scientific community thousands of years ago and passed down multiple generations by word of mouth before language was even written. So it's not going to be perfect, but I see strong or at least moderate correlation um, with the major leading scientific theories. So let me let me ask you this. I would argue that if the God who created the universe inspired a record of that, that it would actually be accurate, that it, that it would be... That it would be trivial and important to at least get the order right. Oh, I agree. I agree and yet that. Genesis doesn't get the order right, which means that the Genesis isn't what God has, you know, it, certainly the order of events don't match the actual events, which means uh, if there is a creator, he's not responsible for what Genesis says, so we can throw Genesis out. Well, let me ask you, where, where exactly do you see it, like, uh, not matching up? Where exactly do I see it? Um, so the order of events in up, up at, the order of events in Genesis is a beginning. And then an earth with darkness enshrouded by heavy gases and water. By the way, I'm pulling this from the Talk Origins archive. So let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you the interpretation that I got from that. So, I, well, um, I wasn't anywhere near done. All right. Then, um, then so, so a beginning, a primitive earth in darkness, then light, then an expanse of atmosphere, then large areas of dry land, land plants, then the sun, the moon, and the stars and then sea monsters and flying creatures, and then wild and tame beasts and mammals, and then man. But the real order is a beginning, and then light, and then the sun and the stars, and then the primitive earth, the moon and the atmosphere, and then dry land, and then sea creatures, and then some land plants. The order doesn't match up. But if you look at it from the perspective of being on Earth, there is some, there is some reasonability with that, because initially the Earth's atmosphere was opaque. Therefore, one who was seeing the perspective of the universe from Earth, would not see the Earth and stars until most of these things had cleared through. No, they would see the Earth if they were on the Earth. Sorry, they would, sorry you're right. Yeah. They wouldn't see the moon and the stars, my bad. It, sure, but are you saying that there was somebody there to record this? Because, no, no, no. Because, no, no. 
first of all, what you may think about the atmosphere certainly doesn't apply with a thinking agent on Earth to record this. And wouldn't God then know that we would discover the order in which these things occurred and find this glaring error in the account that is supposed to be his? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, but, here's, here's, but, here's one other question, John, just, just to mm-hmm. mull over. Is there a way, knowing what we know about the, what science has discovered about the facts of the origin of the universe. If you, if you wanted to dig through a religious text from some other religion and find a way to make it fit to the facts of the universe, don't you think you could do that too? I think it would give it viability, yes. Well, no, 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 I'm not talking about whether or not it's viable. I'm saying you've done this with Genesis. Hindu, Hindus are far closer to the age of the universe you know, mathematically 13, 14 billion years. They're in the, at least in the billion-year ballpark uh, of this. Um, if you talk to Muslims, they will go through the Quran with a fine-tooth comb pointing out how it, it, it's apparently uh, explained everything in science. Here's the problem. It doesn't actually explain these things. We learn about them, and then people go back in and read that into the passage, that a fetus looks like uh, chewed gum, uh, that sort of thing. That's fair. So, so the question is, if we don't have any good reason to believe we have a good record of what God wants or thinks, or whether he exists, and we don't find the Bible particularly reliable, then there would seem to be no reason to try to make the Bible fit scientific facts, because what we know about science, well, well you know, the Bible says bir- bats are birds, but we don't classify them that way. And you could say, well, you know, to a primitive person, it was a flying thing, and that's as good. That, and I, I would agree that a primitive person would look at a bat and put it in the same category as birds, but it's not. And the author, uh, if it were a god that knew the future, would know that we would discover that and there'd be this problem. Now, I'm not raising the bats-birds verse as, ah, ha, ha, this is a big takedown for, you know, Yahweh. Um, the thing is, it also gets a lot of other things wrong with regard to human interactions and morality. And, you know, I've talked about slavery pretty much every week on this show for the history of the show, it seems. Um, But why, what is the motivation to try to make a particular religion that you like, that you've acknowledged you have difficulty justifying, fit in with scientific findings? Because the fact that you may be able to find a correlation between them doesn't tell you anything at all about whether it's true, because here's what happens. There are a whole bunch of different creation myths, and human beings trying to answer the same questions. We are generally similar. This is why our myths are similar. This is why our superheroes are similar. This is why whenever we have something that's unknown, there's a limited pool. Why? Where does lightning come from? Oh, it comes from Thor. It comes from Zeus. It comes from the gods. It comes from this. Because we couldn't really say, oh, lightning comes from... Uh, that amoeba or, or that, that snail on the ground. Nobody would ever, ever think that. So we, we limit that. So by trying to answer questions with limited information coming from limited minds, it's hardly surprising to me. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised that creation origin stories aren't actually more accurate. And every time they try to be specific, they tend to get it wrong. It's in the general things. Mm-hmm. There, there's a way poetically, metaphorically to, to make the, the ancient Egyptian stories uh, true, you know, uh, with the sun god carrying the sun across the sky. Well, we know that's not what actually happens, but 
from the perspective of that person, that was their best understanding of it. And you know what? It was pretty accurate. Uh, I, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, the, the thing, okay, so let me let me turn this around on you real quick. So okay. If I were to tell you back in, um, I don't know, 4000 BCE, uh, before there was really, okay, so like in in, um, in ancient Israel, if I was to tell you, okay, so 3.4 billion years ago, by the way, a billion is as a one with nine zeros falling. By the way, a zero is a concept you guys haven't come up with yet. It, it, you're going to lose the whole story. Um, I mean, the, the beginning of Genesis is not meant to be the focus of the story. It's meant to be kind of a background of what's happening and what's going forward. Well, it's, so, yes, you can say that now. But prior to that, didn't people think that this was literal and accurate and, and accurately got the order of events right? And are people not fallible? Well, yeah, but you have a scenario where for thousands of years or a a long time, people thought the order of creation was one thing because that's what their holy book told them, and it was wrong. And how did we correct that? Did we get a new revelation from God, or did we go out and find the information ourselves? We went out and found it for ourselves. Now, I agree with you on this because when when I follow religion, I don't think that that should promote intellectual laziness. I actually condemn a lot of Christians for that perspective because they say, oh, well, why is the sky blue? Well, God made it that way. No. Yes, that's the case. But it's not just that. It's the Rayleigh scattering effect because the way that the atmosphere works. Mm-hmm. And so if you stop shy, you're not only not pursuing true wisdom, you're not really pursuing what God made for you. Well, I would agree that you're not pursuing true wisdom. I just don't agree why you call it what God made for us because I don't see any reason to think that God made anything for us. And if I were God, which is the title of the book I'm working on, which is why it's kind of easy for me to dig on these particular topics, um, I, I could have created a universe and individuals, and I could have communicated with them in a way where they understood it and understood it correctly and accurately. Right? Yes, you could have. Now, question I have for you then is does that allow for a free will and a choice in faith? Okay, do you believe Do you believe in uh, Satan? I do, yeah. Okay, so under the normative model, Satan, devil, Lucifer, whatever, he has been in God's presence, absolutely knows that God is uh, powerful, uh, mm-hmm. knows the accurate order of creation, and yet still chose to rebel demonstrating that there's no conflict between God revealing himself to someone and them exercising their free will. That's fair. But but at the same time, giving a definitive showing that God is there also can allow for a, well, why is this? I don't know. I'll ask God. Uh, instead of going and finding it out for yourself. Well, that's but beats the point of curiosity. So this is this seems to be kind of a, of a lazy retreat from that. I I know my parents exist and I know they have rules. I can still disobey them. Uh, I know that there are people out there who have the answers. I I could skip to the end of the book, but I don't. Um, I could when I'm working on the the Sudoku on the airplane. I could flip over a couple pages and get the numbers that I'm just not really. Uh, I'm tired of this. I'm bored with it. I can do it. And, you know, uh, the fact that something exists doesn't mean 
anything about what you have to do about it. For example, a god could reveal himself to me right now, and I would definitely believe that that god existed, but that doesn't mean that I would worship or admire or respect. That's true. So, so now we've we've dispensed with the free will excuse for why God won't reveal Himself. Why then isn't there a Damascus Road experience for everybody? Why is He playing favorites? Sorry, I, I, I couldn't hear you right there. Could you say that again? So we've dispensed with the idea that free will is a roadblock to God revealing Himself. And if that's the case, then why isn't everybody deserving of a Damascus Road experience? Why is God playing favorites and selectively doing it? Also. Wouldn't a God understand that selectively picking people out sets up an, a problem of epistemic warrant for everybody else? So, from what, the way I see it, doubt is one of the most important things about increasing your faith. Um, and experiencing trials, tribulations. Why would you want to increase faith? Well, why wouldn't you? Faith is not a reliable pathway to knowledge or understanding. I see no use for faith. Why would God want you to have disagree. faith? Okay. Because sometimes when when you go through discouraging times, if you okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna relate this to gambling for a second, which may not be the best idea for me to do. Uh, but when you gamble, you occasionally get you get um, you get limited feedback, you get limited rewards. Once every uh, three times for the first time, you get a reward. Once every 17 times after that, and then it just it varies. You never know when. Because of that, in psychology, it becomes extremely addictive, and it is extremely difficult to quit. A lot, with that, for, for topic, some people, you have yeah, it's 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 much more difficult to quit than other aspects of or other other uh, types of. Um, I, I'm just trying to figure out what this has to do with faith, because as somebody who gambles, so, I don't yeah, not exercising so, faith. So um, my my point is then. Um, with that same kind of idea of a limited reward system, of it only occasionally happens, people have a tendency to stick with faith more, which means they hold out away from despair more often. No, no, no. no you're not talking about faith now. You're talking about hope and whether or not there's there's a benefit to hope. Oh, no, that's a fair point. Um, and if my hope, if, if my hope is proportional to the evidence and it's based on reason, wouldn't that be better? I mean, if John is spending his life uh, with a positive hope that he's going to be uh, the next president of the United States or president eventually. And and actually, you know, like the odds of that are one in a million, but he thinks the odds are closer to one in one, one in 100. Doesn't he actually have a hope that is potentially damaging? At the same time, though, um, a lot of the people that you see in history are those that were too stubborn to quit. Those that are your, the famous names. You know who are you know, the people who are too stubborn to quit are the people who are mired in religion and try to use faith as the justification for it. That would almost be definitionally too stubborn to quit. They're refusing to. They're also the names that are known most often in history. Well, in general. So is Hitler. Oh my gosh! Did I just lose everything because I mentioned Hitler? I, I'm not. Cons- I'm not God concerned learned. about who's most mentioned in history. I'm concerned about whether or not people have a good reason to believe things. And, if, and, and basically, at this point, you're now arguing that, seemingly arguing, that there's a good reason to believe in God based on faith because 
it makes some people's lives better and might get them mentioned more in history? No, no. I, what I'm saying is that those that pursue un, like unrelentingly are those that more often succeed because those that are wise and then say, oh, my chances are actually extremely low comparatively are those that don't try and as such don't succeed. I don't know what this has fail. to do with God and faith. You're right. I think we got sidetracked. Well, couldn't couldn't God unambiguously reveal Himself to you and still give you kind of that the random rewards model that you you know you compared gambling with? That if you don't know when your rewards are going to be, you're going to have more faith. I think is what you're getting at. And couldn't God uh, still reveal Himself to you, but but not reward you consistently. Hey, I'm God, and I'm going to be watching you, and here's clear confirming you know, evidence that I exist, but you're not going to necessarily know when I am or am not going to interact in your life, but you definitely know that I'm here. Right. Yes, however, I personally don't think that that would make me as motivated to go through the trials and tribulations of my everyday life. I would constantly go more, God, get me out of this. God, get me out of this. God, get me out of this. I'm lazy here. And it would develop a mindset of, being coddled constantly. Okay. Don't don't people don't like don't people do that anyway? Yeah. They, whether whether God has revealed Himself to them or not, don't they do exactly that? Aren't there people who spend the vast majority of their lives convinced that a God can get them out of stuff, or at least pray for what they want, the way they want things to be? Oh Lord, help me yeah. get through this test. Lord, don't let my my car get repossessed. Lord, please let my mom not die. People don't do that all the time. I mean, they do, but they still go after ways to find it for themselves. If they do it all the time, then wouldn't it be better for them to have a direct, clear revelation of God and have God say, I'm not going to be answering your every whim. I want you to know I exist, and I want you to know what I expect of you. But, you know, if you're in a tight spot, don't just go reaching out to me. You're going to have to do a lot of this yourself. That's what a parent would do. I mean, why is it that it's so easy for me as a fallible human being, to be a better God than God. Because, okay, so we're also looking at this from a finite perspective. With the Okay, so supposing God exists, okay. he has infinite wisdom and infinite perspective. Okay. So, well, okay, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going for the cop-out right now of Mysterious ways. Humans, how can we possibly know? Yeah, um, yeah. From, from so, but, and I'm glad you went this I'm, way because this is actually one of the chapters in the book is this idea of, oh, we're limited beings, so we don't have the perspective of God, so we can't assess what, what, what God could or couldn't do or should or shouldn't do because we can't know as much as he does, and he has good reasons uh, for not doing the things that we think he should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you know what, you know what that is? That's garbage. That is that is that is a garbage excuse because it could also be the case that God doesn't have good reasons. That matter of fact, we are correct, or that a God doesn't exist. Yeah. So, so, but I agree with you. I understand that your perspective. You have a much better perspective on this. I agree with you on that. Well, However, my, my thing is, my my thing is, John, and and I, you know, there's a whole bunch of other people waiting. I don't mean to just cut the call off, and I will let you yeah, no, get to this point, but. If we can, if we agree that even that potential explanation does not get us to any sort of warrant, it's it's along the lines of well, that's exactly what an innocent person would say. That sort of inquisition it, it, it seems similar to me. 
of course you would say that, you know, or a guilty person would say that they're innocent uh, to avoid conviction. And a God has a good enough reason to not do the things we expect. But there's a bigger problem here, and that is if there's a God, if you were a God and you had good reasons to not interact with humans the way they would expect, don't you think you could find a way to communicate this in a way that doesn't violate uh, or, or expand this problem? And if it is in fact impossible, aren't you ultimately responsible for that problem as you created the system and the limited beings, and now you're putting a completely unrealistic, unreasonable expectation on them to be able to figure out and accept things for which you yourself know are impossible and, and beyond evidential warrant. So, what I have to say about this is that part of why I went after physics and why I'm pursuing science is because from my perspective and the way that I see it being a Christian, I know since God is infinite, the world that he has created is that the universe he's created has infinite like amount of knowledge for us to pursue. So I know for a fact that my field will never really end. We'll never find some solid theory of everything. If we do, that will probably be evidence that God doesn't exist, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, and string theory doesn't count because it's unfalsifiable. We have no way of possibly proving it. Uh, so it becomes a philosophical debate at that point. Uh, but in any case, because I know that my pursuit of curiosity will never end, that's one of the things that I'm most thankful to God for. And the worst part about being a Christian is I know that based on my understanding of God, no matter what we say, we'll not be able to prove anything because God, if he exists, is unfalsifiable because of how he works. If he does exist, there will be some evidence down the line that he truly doesn't, which I hate hate, hate that, because the only form of evidence that we have that for ourselves is anecdotal. We have no possible way to prove God's true existence. We have correlations. We have small things that say, okay, maybe this is actually the case. But we just, we can't. We can't prove it. So the best thing we can do is just hope that no one, or not really necessarily hope, but expect that no one is going to have a definitive, nope, you're wrong. And I would say the best thing you could do is to not believe something until there's sufficient reason to believe it and not just sit there saying, I believe this, or or as you said, you know that God is this and you know God's characteristics and you know that God is falsifiable and limitations and I hope that nobody ever proves God wrong. All you're doing is talking about how much you want this to be the case, not how much warrant there is to accept that it's the case. And that's not the way science is done. It's not the way physics is done. Uh, it may be the way string theory is done, but, you know, that's a conversation for another day. And my my friend Lawrence Cross may object to that. Maybe I'll talk to him about that the next time we do an event. So, you, okay, I, I understand where you're coming from. That's a very good point. I, I'm just, I, I, know, I know you believe, and I know it's frustrating that you believe while acknowledging that you can't find a good reason to believe, that you've accepted an unfalsifiable proposition. And while you may, in fact, be viewing this uh, in a science-ish way, uh, I don't see how this is is good skepticism or good science because the time to believe something is after there's warrant. The time to uh, point to another scientific model that has this characteristic of unfalsifiable, which we think we should go ahead and just accept. That, that's the that's the foundation of what Popper was teaching us. 
that's a good point. But on that note, I want to get on well, some other callers uh, real quick. But you're please email, yeah. call back in some other time. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for talking with me. Thanks, John. Okay. PC's making a lot of funny noises. Yeah, we're. I, th- I think that's the machine in the other room that we're hearing in our ears. <laughs> okay. uh, but it could be. It could be. Well, no, it happened after the call was off. Uh, but you know, stuff like that happens in a live show. There it is again. There it is. I wonder if we're getting pop-up notifications and spammed with ads, and if the whole thing's going to explode and the show's going to end before we get to. Oh no. I I, I went ahead and and, and kind of ended that because John, you know, and I had talked for a long time, and I wanted to get some more thoughts in from you. Uh, hopefully that's not mine. Nope. I think it is you. Uh, I don't know how to be coming through the headphones. Oh. Look, go ahead and talk, John. Oh, okay. Matt is muting his PC now. I don't know if that's going out on the air, but uh, anyway. Live show. Yeah. <laughs> Started to make a point. So I have earbuds in so that I can clearly hear the caller and, and us, and, and that means that I don't hear that it, the sound's actually coming from this machine right in front of my microphone, which is proof that I'm not going to get everything right. <laughs> I, I like that call, and, and one of the things is uh, we talked about this before about this idea of referring to people who believe uh, as if they are intellectually inferior. And I've talked about how, you know, my, my IQ didn't go up when I stopped believing. I just got a better access to better information and a better perspective on it. Um, and the thing they find most interesting about that call is that it, John hadn't thought through some of the things, you know, oh, that's a good point, that's a good point, um, and certainly didn't change his mind over the course of the call. But I'm confident that John will at least think about those things. Uh, because for somebody who cares about truth and cares about science, I think the, the the most troubling thing for me was you just you just believe and you hope that nobody comes along and proves you wrong. I, I know that we do that sort of thing. We, I, we all do that sort of thing yeah. about something, but I don't think that we should do that sort of thing. And I think if it, if if we were exposed to the fact that this is what we're doing, you know. Uh, Here's an example of me doing it. I've had problems with my eyes for a while. Occasionally they'll get blurry, it'll get bitter, get fixed. I need to go see an ophthalmologist. I know this. I know this from the science. Uh, uh, I know this from my various health conditions. I have not done it. Something else slightly more important than whether or not I could see clearly uh, has come up at every opportunity. And so I'm sitting here hoping that the situation doesn't get worse, despite the evidence that it probably is getting worse. And I'm hoping it doesn't get too bad before I actually go see the doctor. I'm being stupid. I am, I am doing the very thing that I would have criticized John for doing with regard to a god. The difference is, is that when it's pointed out to me, I happily acknowledge, uh, not, not, too, not too happily, that this is what I'm doing. And it motivates me to stop doing it, yeah. which, which is why I'll be having an appointment with an ophthalmologist soon. People are really good at, at rationalizing. Everybody is. And, and you mentioned it in the call that, you know, you take what you already believe and then you try to retrofit it into, uh, into this thing that you want to believe, trying to retrofit it into the Bible and, uh, that, that backwards thing. And I see that all the time. People latch onto something and so then they go looking for evidence to support what they already believe. 
And we do it in all avenues of our life, and it's something you have to consciously be aware of and try not to do because it's it's a really natural thing to do to reinforce your own beliefs that already exist. So there's nothing that John's doing that isn't perfectly normal. It's just kind of your awareness of it and your application of skepticism and reason and scientific method that kind of gets you out of that trap. There's a number of things that I'd, I'd love to get a chance to talk to John about. Maybe he'll call back in on another week when I'm on. Um, one of them is when you, when you have this sort of model, how much does your God belief affect your other decisions? I mean, certainly we know people uh, who are in specific versions of Christianity where uh, what they believe about uh, abortion or climate change or whatever that they've derived from their religion is going to affect who they're going to vote for, what policies they're going to... I don't know how much that in, uh, affects what John thinks uh, and how, how he votes. Um, when you know, if, if you haven't bothered to spend much time looking at the Bible and you really don't expect it, it to be accurate, um, maybe you're not against same-sex marriage. You know, maybe this is where the the moderate to liberal uh, theists come from. Uh, but my problem is, is that yes, it's true that fundamentalists can become liberal and moderate believers. You know, they they get away. They, on occasion, they, they throw away the things that are clearly problematic, but they just want to hang on to this abstract notion of God. But I've also seen it work the other way, where once somebody becomes convinced of this abstract notion of God, uh, instead of having a conversation with me now, what if John had had a conversation with me 25 years ago? And my conversation with John went a little differently. Well, John, you believe that the Bible is... God's instruction book for your life, that they, you believe that there is a God, you, you're not expecting everything to be perfect, but why is it you haven't bothered to study it? What is it you're afraid of? I mean, if this is God's book that he wants you to give, shouldn't you have good explanations for why you have problems with it? Because maybe the problem is you. Maybe the problem is not with God. Maybe the problem is not with the transcription or the interpretation. Maybe the problem is you. Maybe there's something in your life, something in your heart. I can't keep doing this because it's <laughs> It's vile. But if that kind of conversation happened, that's how you move someone who is a liberal, you know, kind of Christian towards fundamentalism. Uh, because if the book says, if a man lies with another man as he lies with a woman, my friend Keith Lowell Jensen would say that's advice about positions. You should just lift up a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> but if the book says that, and the, the general view is that this is, you know, a declaration that homosexuality is an abomination and they are deserving of death, um, boy, that's kind of important. Uh, I, I'm, I'm an atheist in part because I took seriously uh, what I thought my obligation was as a Christian, which was to have good reasons for my beliefs. Uh, I want to try and get to one, maybe two more callers. Uh, Michael's been waiting in Tel Aviv, Israel, for like the whole show and then some change. So, how you doing, Michael? Um, yeah, I'm still here. Just one second. Sure. I'm with you. Hello. Hi. Hi. Am I am I live? You you yeah. are live. You're on with Matt and John. So I just got a little bit uh, confused. Um, yeah, I'm Michael from Israel, as you can see. Um, so there were a couple of issues, a couple of stuff I wanted to talk about. Um, first of all, um, I do read a lot of English, but I don't get to speak too much, so. I might get uh, stuck a little bit, uh, you know, at a loss of words or something. So just yeah. uh, something, you know. 
<laughs> I, I'm sure we'll find a way to make it work. What have you got for us? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I uh, uh, have this uh, sort of uh, issue about uh, mis- uh, circumcision, which, you know, um, um, from one... From <clears throat> And from one, from one perspective, it's something uh, which is very, it's inherently immoral. So, you know, like you take a child who, you know, is not even aware enough to make a choice about, you know, something like that. And uh, you circumcise it because it's, uh, its parents' beliefs and so on. And, you know, you don't really give the person a choice about it. But, uh, so, you know, it's immoral in, I know, this way or another. But uh, on the other end... Um, how can I put this? Um, you know, it's got like a more or less a pretty, you know, pretty form, uh, formally proven or shown uh, health benefits, you know? No, the, not, not really. Well, so the, maybe there, not. There's, a, there's oh. a study from Africa which has some problematic methodology um, about potential health benefits, but... To the extent that that study might be correct and there might be uh, potential health benefits from from circumcision, um, that doesn't mean that you get the benefit by violating the individual autonomy of an infant and routinely circumcising infants. People can actually take the steps to willfully choose to be circumcised in order to get those benefits. So you can teach... um, you know, the actual science behind it. There's not a health organization in the world that recommends the routine circumcision uh, of children for health benefits, even the ones that would, would acknowledge that there are some health benefits to being circumcised. You know why? Because oh. infants aren't sexually active. Ah, no, that's, that's actually obvious. Um, <laughs> um, there, there's, no no, benef- there's no benefit that couldn't be achieved by wearing a condom when you're an adult and you're sexually active. Yeah, the, the studies in, in portions of Africa... Uh, part of the methodology problems has to do with access to condoms and other things. And, and on occasion, you'll hear people talk about uh, how, well, you know, it's difficult to keep clean. Um, and I have a joke which is true, which is never in the history of the world has it been difficult to get uh, someone who has a penis uh, to keep it clean in the shower, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Well, we were talking. Uh, we were talking in the last call about you know taking something you already believe and and then rationalizing it after the fact. And I think that's exactly what they've done with circumcision. They want to do circumcision, so they go out in search of well, what possible health benefits can we find that might justify circumcision in some small way? And then they say, see, uh, this thing that we already do and have wanted to do for hundreds of years. Uh, is you know there's a there's a justification for it so it's it's backwards it's the same backwards thing. When I look at Wikipedia, you talked about the specifically the issue of uh, sexually transmitted diseases. Mm-hmm. So there's like this practice in Africa to circumcise men so they you know don't won't propagate uh, AIDS actually from what from what you're saying yes. Yeah. Um, also, no, but, some. But, so the, there's a number of the problems I've already pointed out with that study. Not only their condoms, but actually um, we're making advances to where there's a pill uh, that you can take, which will dramatically decrease the chance of uh, acquiring HIV. Yeah, but again, there are two, there are several things I find problematic about it in general. That uh, first of all, I was circumcised, 
you know, with or without choice. So yeah, when, me you too. Know, come, yeah. So, so when, when somebody comes and talks about, you know, like uh, how it uh, affects your uh, sexual uh, satisfaction and, uh, you know, it's, it's like stuff that really, really bothers me in the sense that, you know, like, am, am I missing out on something? You know, like, um, how can I put this? It's like, was I really maimed? Because it's, it's, you know, it's sentiments that I didn't have before I heard that argument, you know? It's a, it's a difficult conversation to... To make, and I've heard, um, you know, I, I know Ron Lindsay suggested that skeptics or secularists shouldn't really worry about um, routine male circumcision, and I, I called for him to resign because I think it is something we should worry about. Um, I don't think it's anywhere near the biggest problem in the world. It's certainly, um, you know, I was I was circumcised. I don't have loads of complaints, partially because I don't have anything. Uh, to compare it to, but I'm still pissed that some that my body was altered without my permission. However, I can live the rest of my life and function adequately. That's not the same as what we see with cases of female genital mutilation where there are uh, severing clitoris yes. and things like that. So we can't put them on even remotely equal footing apart from saying both of these are civil rights violations where they are wholly unnecessary, they begin for religious purposes, they don't have a sufficient cost-benefit analysis, even if those health condition concerns were legitimate, to justify violating somebody's bodily autonomy. You can just wait, educate, and let somebody make up their own mind later. So, you know, we have to be be cautious. Um, There's a fallacy that I've pointed out a bunch of times called the fallacy of relative privation, which is when somebody says, oh, well, we should only focus on the biggest problem. Uh, you know, that, that problem's not big enough for us to focus on. Uh, it's a fallacy, and we should focus on every single problem in reasonable ways that we think we can actually have an effect on. If I've got a, a flat tire on my truck, it's an immediate problem. There's the triage thing. You know, when there are people coming in in war, you, you go for the ones, uh, there's somebody here who's just going to die, that spending time on this is going to, you know, even if you have a very slim chance of saving them, you're going to lose 20 others. And so you, you appropriately triage to figure out which ones you can immediately get to stable positions because they may be able to help with others as well. You have that sort of triage with problems as well. The idea that you should only focus on the biggest problem. Oh, my gosh, climate change, it's the biggest problem. I, I agree. Yeah. It's potentially the biggest problem. But I can't really do anything uh, or can't do much with regard to, to climate change. Uh, I can do some things, but I can do this TV show. I can talk to people about what they believe and why and try to encourage a world that is more secular, more skeptical, uh, and no, that, more humanist. That's obvious. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, again, the, the, the issue I had that I thought, it, I thought circumcision had actual, you know, proven uh, health benefits and uh, that the worst uh, damage from circumcision was apparent when uh, an adult went, uh, went and done the procedure, you know? So I've heard I've heard people talk about uh, men who got circumcised circumcised as adults after being sexually active. Uh, Some of them referred to uh, the experience of sex being in color prior to the circumcision and in black and white afterwards. Uh, Now, how much of this is, you know, hyperbole? Because quite honestly, I can't imagine it being a whole lot better uh, because sex is pretty awesome. But you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. No, but the bottom line is I'm saying um, 
if you if you bypass this issue of you know uh, comparative experiences you know like uh, sex before and after circumcision and you get some other benefits like I don't know reduced the uh, chance for uh, prostate cancer or whatever then it's supposedly better to have a circumcision as an infant you know why but you're saying that I don't know what the, I don't know why the benefits would be better for an infant uh, but you know what else would reduce that just cut the whole thing off no I'm I'm just saying the benefits will be the same whether you went in dance circumcision as an infant or as an adult, but uh, the damage, you know, psychological effects and so on will be much worse as an adult, you know? I, I, don't, I don't necessarily know that that's the case because, um, first of all, and I don't know that it, it gives any justification to violate somebody's bodily autonomy. Um, yeah. Hey, it would be much less painful if we just go ahead and, and put four piercings in every baby's ear um, the second they come out of the womb, because they're probably not going to remember, it's not going to be a big deal, and we're pretty sure they're going to want at least one hole in their ear at some point. So we'll just yeah. play the odds, or you know, it it might be better to just um, for a while. We doctors recommended routinely removing kids' tonsils and things, just you know, or the appendix yeah. is is uh, you know a, a vestigial organ, and might as well just take it out while we're in here. And it turns out um, that that was a little bit of hubris on our part. Of, of acting like we knew better. Uh, but at, at the, in the end, I still just can't get behind the idea of violating somebody's bodily autonomy. But on that note, we're, we're up against 6 o'clock. There's one more call I want to get to. Um, okay. I appreciate well, I, it. I okay. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I don't want to spend the whole back half of the show on circumcision. We've done whole shows on it. Yep. Um, oh, well, the, the one caller that uh, I was going to go to as the last caller seems to have run away. Uh-oh. Uh, and that one is a monstrous call. We'll, we'll go ahead and uh, Paul's been waiting from Louisville, and we'll, we'll take Paul as our last call. My apologies to everybody else. And after this call's over uh, and we shut down the show, everybody involved or some of the folks involved get together go to dinner at... Uh, Star of India Restaurant, 2900 West Anderson Lane. They'll probably put it up on the bottom. Uh, how you doing, Paul? Oh, just fine. Um, I'm to try to make this as quickly as possible. Um, I, um, I'm ashamed to admit that I fell for an April Fool's joke from James Randi. Uh, the name of the video is Seth Raphael Claims Randi's Million Dollar Challenge. Um, I was wondering... If James Randi's intentions were to use this as a teaching tool, because if you observe the opening of the video, you have all the elements of legitimacy. Um, the presenter is standing behind a podium that reads MIT Media Lab. Also, you have the very re- well-respected uh, skeptic James Randi. Mm-hmm. This was so present in my mind that I completely missed the funny hat the lady was wearing. Also, during the presentation, Randy places his, uh, this goofy contraption on Seth Raphael. And <clears throat> this is the kind of tactics used by promoters of the paranormal. You have a ghost hunter who studied at this or that university and has a Ph.D. in something. Am I reading more into this, or is, is Randy just having a good joke? I, do you think that he had a, an intention for this? or I, I, So I can tell you what I can do, uh, because Randy and I did an event in um, Vancouver, and there's talk that we might do another event uh, this coming year right. in Ottawa. 
we can perhaps talk about the April Fool's joke. Um, we are not, I Great. mean, we, we've done events together and we know each other, but we're, we're, we're not close friends. But I can say with pretty strong confidence that it was absolutely intended, intended as a teaching episode, but you know, also a bit oh, of really? fun, April, April Fool's fun and everything. Yeah, right. But everything he does in the realm of skepticism is about teaching. And don't feel bad because you got fooled. Um, it, it's probably easier for him to fool you than almost anybody else, both as, right. as a yeah. magician and a skeptic. Because you come in with some level of trust, and that's the lesson to take away: is that just be just because Randy says that he becomes he's become convinced of something that that on a no, on its own is not enough. You know, we need to know yeah. what the actual evidence is, um, and anybody can be fooled. And the second you, you know, think, the second you think you can't be fooled, it's too late. And my favorite, did you know, April, how he did that trick at the end of that show that yes. he did in Canada. You do know how that was, was it? Yeah. Can yes. I get to my second? I won't quickly get onto this because this is my main topic. Okay. It's about debating. Um, I've watched your uh, debates uh, with Matt Slick, and this is a name I wonder if it's really real because he seems to slide away from difficult questions. And I'm frustrated with how he plays these logic games. It seems like he does this to divert questions about scientific weaknesses in the Bible. And I want to scream when I hear him say, I love science. Now, Me I don't possess your, your debating skills and will probably never debate someone of his caliber. But after watching. Oh, you debate, could debate a hundred people of Matt Slick's caliber. <laughs> okay, well, let me go on. But after watching these debates, I was wondering if I could, uh, as a disarming technique, agree to my definition of a God, just as Tom Sawyer exists in the minds of readers of Mark Twain. Tom Sawyer never really walked the face of the earth, but exists in the mind of the readers of Mark Twain. I could say something like, okay, here's my God, the God I give the name, no God. This God only exists in my mind and doesn't have any supernatural qualities, thereby I'd be able to debate the supernatural God. What are the pitfalls of this kind of strategy? That is, I want to get people away from arguing God and say, your, your supernatural God is what I'm really wanting to debate. And he seems to try to avoid, because when you want to go after the Bible and the inaccuracies in the science in the Bible, he starts playing these games about what is reality. You assume reality. Do you find any pitfalls in, in like the, what I'm calling a disarming technique? Yes, loads of them. Number one, you debate whatever God they're presented. They get to define the God that they are defending, and you get you have to address it that way. Also, yeah. when you def, when you call your God the the no God, you've set up a, a contradiction. And when you say that it only exists in the minds, now you have a different uh, ontology than the God that they're talking about. So, if I tell you that I believe that you know. Uh, Pixies pull socks out of drawer out of the dryer so that I constantly end up with mismatched pairs, and you then try to argue against that by arguing against something completely different. Well, now we're not discussing what my belief is. You have no way to show that I'm either wrong or unreasonable unless you actually address what it is that I'm claiming. So you have to play their game, for lack of a better word. I don't find it to be a game, uh, and he's not playing tricks with logic and reality. He is following a particular line of reasoning, which is flawed, which I think we've kind of shown is is flawed. Um, 
but you have to actually deal with what's presented. If a caller calls up and, and says to me, you know, if I if my conversation with John, if if John had claimed uh, that you know he's a Christian, but he worships Satan, well, I've got to try to find a way to make sense of that to show what's potentially wrong with it. I, I don't get to say, oh well, I'm going to argue against the Satan that only lives in my underwear drawer. Yeah, I mean, it, okay. you just can't get anywhere that way. And it, and if the goal, you got to think about what the goals are in debates and discussions. Is it to try and make the world more reasonable and encourage people to give up beliefs that they don't have good reason for? Or is it about mocking or showing that you're right? Now, I am fine with mockery and ridicule where it's deserved, but in a, in a debate on a topic, you know, I've had opponents show up uh, to debate one topic and then completely change it. And despite the fact that they want to now talk about something we didn't agree, you know, we were supposed to debate whether or not God exists and that turned into a debate about morality. Um, the best I can do is comment that, well, we were here to discuss God, but if you want to go down this road of morality, I will at least address what you're saying. Um, then you win twice. You win twice because they tried to, you know, pull a, a slick move uh, to get you into some other area and you demolished that area too. Um, Do you think you could ever arrange for a debate with Matt Slick where you'd say, we're just going to debate the Bible? Could you do that? Well, you... Matt, Matt contacted me because he was going to be in Austin in May, and uh, I suggested that while he was here, he should come over to the house, we'll have some tequila, we'll set up a camera, sit down on, in a couple chairs, and have a conversation, not not a debate, a conversation about what he believes, what I believe, you know, because I think those are often more productive than debates. Uh, unfortunately... I, I don't know if he just didn't come to Austin or if he, uh, he decided against it or whatever else, which is a shame because we both like tequila and I had a re- I had the best bottle of tequila there ready for us. But I haven't heard back from him. And frankly, well, I've got enough stuff going on that it, it's, just I'm not going to lose one sleep quick over it. Final thing. Uh, that caller earlier was talking about these, uh, you know, that he saw these ghosts or whatever. I like to, this is another technique that you might find a weakness in, but I like to tell people I find it better to choose to not believe this or to choose to believe this because, for example... You can't choose what you believe. Huh? You can't choose what you believe. Okay, well, for example, if somebody said, uh, let's say we had murders in our city and then uh, they couldn't find the, the murderers, my, from a mental health standpoint, I'm looking for a natural explanation, which I find more mentally helpful than to say, oh, since we can't find this murderer, then it's demonic. That is, I, I choose to, to hope for a natural explanation for these things that don't have a current, currently have an answer. I find that psychologically, mentally more appealing to me than to assume that it's something paranormal. Oh, well, what do you think I, about I, that philosophy? Well, okay, so uh, there was a bit of confusion in there because you said we had a bunch of murders and you prefer to hope for a natural explanation rather than a supernatural one. Uh, that's, well, that's, that's not the same as, that's not, that's, that's, that's not the same as choosing what you believe. Okay, yeah. You didn't make a choice. If a supernatural explanation came along and it was properly sourced with evidence and somebody could actually demonstrate the supernatural, wouldn't you accept it? 
Yeah. And since that's never happened, isn't it by default more reasonable that we're li- or more likely that we're going to find a natural explanation? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So you're just going with, uh, I think the explanation is probably going to be more likely natural than supernatural. It's, it's not about choosing what you believe. It's not, you, you don't know how those people died, and I don't. Although I will point out that we don't get to call murders until there's actually a demonstration that it's a murder. Uh, but on that note, i got to let you go. And as a reminder, uh, Star of India Restaurant here shortly. Um, my favorite April Fool's joke, by the way, I was going to mention this. Still trying to figure this out. No, oh, go ahead. Oh, you're still trying to figure Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, it's probably on YouTube. Just search for Spaghetti April Fools. Um, it's very, very old, and it is, I think, one of the most brilliant April Fools' jokes ever. And I won't run it for you. Just Spaghetti April Fools and go enjoy yourself. I'm sure it'll pop up. On that note, we are done for today. Thanks to John and uh, all the people on the other side of the glass and the crew on the other side of the wall who sent me a bunch of messages letting me know it was my laptop making the noise and would you please fix it, doofus. And I was so busy doing a show, and my eyes aren't good enough to actually read the laptop from that far away. We'll be back again next week. If you are an atheist or atheist-friendly person, you're welcome to join us here. Don't forget to visit the website, find out more about donating, um, which you can do at YouTube and at our website. And until then, take care. Russell Glasser, host of The Atheist Experience. You know, The Atheist Experience is made possible by volunteers and the generous support of viewers like you. If the promotion of positive atheist culture and separation of church and state are values that you hold, please consider contributing by becoming an ACA member or visiting our product page at EvolveFish.com under the Partner tab. Thank you.